Welcome to History Books and Wine, where three author friends talk about books and fun historical tidbits, all while raising a glass of vino. We're your hosts, Lori and Bailey, Eliza Knight, and Madeline Martin. So, pour a glass and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 18 of the History Books and Wide podcast. Thank you so much for joining me tonight. I'm Eliza Knight, your host for this week. I'm a USA Today bestselling author of Scottish historical romance with irresistible heroes, courageous heroines, and daring adventure. Under my name, E. Knight, I write rip-your-heart-out historical fiction that crosses landscapes around the world. Our podcast topics over the next few weeks are all about amazing women in history. This week, I'm talking about Queen Boudicca from the ancient Celts of Britain. But first, I'm going to tell you what I'm drinking. Tonight, I'm having Murphy Good Pinot Noir. My sister introduced me to this wine a few months ago, and I really love it. From their website, it says, Our 2016 Pinot Noir comes from vineyards up and down the coast of California, including Arroyo Seco, Santa Maria Valley, and Monterey. I hope I didn't butcher any of those names. (laughs) Cool conditions in these prime growing spots keep grapes at a perfect balance between vibrant dark fruit character and bright acidity. Notes of vanilla from aging in French and American oak add complexity to the intense black cherry aromas and flavors. Serve this one with a cedar plank salmon, hot off the grill, or pair with your favorite pulled pork. Or do as I'm doing and enjoy it while indulging in a bit of history. All right, let's dig into Boudicca's past. Boudicca, or sometimes called Boudicca, was a Celtic warrior queen of the Iceni tribe who led a revolt against Roman rule in ancient Britain in AD 60 or 61. Her name comes from the Celtic word Buddha, which means victory. Little is known about her early life, and the information we do have comes from two different sources. Scholars, who didn't actually know her, Tacitus and Cassius Dio, who also happened to have been Roman, her enemies. Tacitus's account is often seen as more credible than Cassius because he lived during her life and his father-in-law was Agricola, who happened to be the governor of Britain at the time, while Cassius wasn't even born until nearly a hundred years after this whole thing took place. In any case, it is agreed that Boudicca was born of royal descent around the year 30 AD. She's described as being very tall with long reddish brown hair and a harsh voice. Although, as uh, I mentioned, the notes written on her are from Romans who would have seen her as being harsh and also viewed women in a place of authority as somewhat beneath them. So hence the harsh voice. I mean, she could very well have had a harsh voice, but I'm just saying like these guys didn't like her anyway. (laughs) Possibly around AD 43, Boudicca married Prasitagus, king of the Iceni tribe, the area of which is now known as Norfolk in Britain is where he ruled. And her new husband happened to be on pretty good terms with the Romans. I wouldn't say they were considered besties because in reality, Prasitagus was forced to uh, align with the Romans. He and Boudicca spent a lot of time fighting off Roman forces, but they were better off than some of their neighbors who were simply just conquered completely. Romans invaded and conquered southern England around the start of their marriage, but it wasn't the first time they'd been on British soil. Romans have been pillaging since Caesar's time, nearly a hundred years so far, so Romans on British soil was nothing new. Most Celtic tribes were forced to submit to Roman rule, 
give up their land or be plundered. But for some reason, the Romans let Prostatagus continue in power as a forced ally of the empire. It could be that he agreed to support the Romans politically and to pay dues as a tribal leader. Money has power and influence, right? In his will, Prostatagus had agreed that when he died, half of his land would go to the Romans and half to his daughters, of which he had two. Their names were never recorded in history, a sad fact we often encounter when doing research about women in more ancient times, and let's be honest, in even more recent times too. In the book A Year of Ravens, my part is that of the daughters, and I gave them names which I thought befitted their roles. Kina, which means brave, and Sorsha, which means bright light. The interesting part about Prostatagus naming his daughters as heirs, and the fact that the Romans may have agreed to this, is that in Celtic society, women could rule as queens in their own right and own property. However, in Roman culture, women had limited rights and were generally supposed to obey their male relatives, not lead them. Which leads me to think that perhaps the Romans weren't aware of what exactly the will contained. Sadly, the day came in AD 60 when Boudicca's husband died, and the Romans, who did not believe in women gaining a superior role, took offense to Prostatagus having decided to take control of his own will, and that he hadn't given it all up to Nero. The attack was catastrophic. Romans invaded the kingdom, looted the palace, enslaved his people, and stripped Boudicca and her daughters of their rights. They confiscated his land and property. But that wasn't all. As if stripping them of their rights and casting them out wasn't bad enough, they added further humiliation and torment to the mix when they publicly flogged Boudicca and raped her two daughters in front of their people. Let's just take a moment to take that in and sip our wine because it's really devastating news. Boudicca was not only a queen to her people, but also a priestess, as back in this time, Judaism was very much alive. Her people saw her as the goddess Andraste, So to beat her and rape her daughters was not only an earthly violation, but one that was soul-desecrating and tore apart an entire culture and their beliefs. These Romans had violated spiritual beings. Revenge was not a question of will they, but when. The overwhelming support for the Aseni queen and her violated daughters was astounding. Her tribe was not the only one suffering from Roman occupation, and so it was easy for her to gain the army she needed in order to exact her revenge. According to Tacitus, Boudicca's promise of vengeance was given when rallying troops to fight. And here is what he says, she said, I am descended from mighty men, but now I am not fighting for my kingdom and wealth. I am fighting as an ordinary person for my lost freedom, my bruised body, and my outraged daughters. Nowadays, Roman rapacity does not even spare our bodies. Old people are killed, virgins raped, but the gods will grant us the vengeance we deserve. The Roman division which dared to fight is annihilated. The others cower in their camps or watch for a chance to escape. They will never face even the din and the roar of all our thousands, much less the shock of our onslaught. Consider how many of you are fighting and why. Then you will win this battle or perish. That is what I, a woman, plan to do. Let the men live in slavery if they will. Powerful words. Like most other ancient Celtic women, Boudicca had trained as a warrior, including fighting techniques and the use of weapons, and so had her daughters. And they chose a perfect time to strike back at the Romans. Sorry, I gotta take a sip of my Murphy good. The Roman provincial governor Paulinus was away leading a military campaign in Wales hundreds of miles from where she was. Upon her chariot and with her daughters outfitted in their own, weapons in hand, Boudicca led the rebellion of the Iceni and other tribes resentful of Roman rule, catching the Romans by surprise. The Iceni and her troops showed no mercy, butchering and burning alive the Romans, even those who fled for their lives in Camaldonum. <laughs> 
I'm, I'm sure I'm butchering that. Camel, Camelodunum, now called Colchester, they defeated the Romans' Ninth Legion. Boudicca and her army sacked their way to London, leaving a trail of ashes and bodies in their wake. But she wasn't done there. Next on her list were those Britons who'd sided with the Romans, and so she took her army back northwest, and the Cotulani tribe, probably also butchered that name, and their province, Verulamium. Ver, Verulamium. Oh my god. That's like such a mouth twister when you're drinking wine. Okay, and probably also when you're not drinking wine. So, those in the province guessed they would be next and worked to evacuate. Some were able to escape Boudicca's rebellion, which, which burned the town to the ground. They then found out the countryside to continue their annihilation of their enemies. In all, Tacitus claimed in his writings that Boudicca and her forces massacred around 70 to 80,000 people. Having received word about the rebellion at this point, Paulinus had hauled his and his troops' butts back to face off Boudicca in a clash we still talk about today. In fact, researchers are still trying to pinpoint the exact location, though it is somewhere in the Midlands, possibly near Watling Street. The battle itself is now referred to as the Battle of Watling Street. 10,000 Roman troops met Boudicca's army of over 200,000. The numbers alone suggest a win. However, we know she failed. But how? How in the world is that possible that she, with an army of 200,000 angry people, could lose against 10,000? The reason is, it came down to fighting styles and most probably the lands on which they fought, and the enemy having chosen advantageous ground. The Britons were experts in guerrilla-style warfare, and Romans were trained and skilled as highly organized killing machines. While the Celts did not wear body armor, the Romans did. The Celts also fought with long swords, which required a lot of space and power to wield, whereas the Romans used short swords, which were lethal in close combat, and easier to use when in the Roman shield wall formation. Additionally, prior to the rebellions, much of the Britons had been disarmed as opposed to the Romans who were fully equipped. So they didn't come to battle with as many weapons as were necessary to beat the Romans. They just didn't have the supplies. Nor were they given advantageous ground, which I mentioned a moment ago. But 200 versus a 10,000, that's what I keep trying to wrap my head around. That's so many men. It's a no brainer until you see the lay of the land. So Polinus chose a narrow gorge with a forest behind him and a plain in front. The gorge would protect the Romans from flank attacks. So like none of Boudicca's men could circle around and attack from the sides, which would be very helpful in a fight when you, you, she could have easily overwhelmed these guys, but she couldn't get to them. And the forest at their back would hamper any approach of Boudicca's army from the rear. In front of them was this narrow gorge in which the Romans encouraged them to fight instead of on the plain field where they would have had open space and been able to surround the Roman armies. Instead, they were forced into this narrow space. Boudicca led her army forward across the plain and into the narrowing gorge in a massive frontal attack. As her warriors advanced, they were channeled into this tightly packed mass. Think of like when farmers are gathering their sheep or cows and they tunnel them into the little fenced-in area so that they're just packed in there. There's nowhere to go but forward. This is what the Romans did. Plinus predicted that this would happen and that's why he chose that area. Before the Britons even had a chance to get into close contact with their enemies, the Romans threw their javelins, cutting down charging Britons who wore no armor, damaging any shields they might have held. Forced to discard damaged shields that were either split in half or had giant pikes now, you know, jutting out of them, they were left completely exposed. The Romans then marched forward in their own tightly packed wedge-like column, shields up, 
fully armored, fully weaponized. They were well-organized and disciplined, a machine. Used to fighting in these formations, they had the clear advantage, and they knew it. They were confident, and Boudicca's army, unfortunately, was too confident. When Boudicca's army realized that they were going to be defeated if they did not flee, they tried to retreat to make their escape. Just turn around, right? Go back through that gorge. Go up to the plain. But here's the problem. Having defeated so many in previous battles and knowing their numbers were staggering compared to the Romans, the Celts brought along many wagons and carts filled with their families and other spectators to watch the destruction of the Romans claiming their victory in Britain. The carts surrounded the gorge. This also blocked them from being able to escape. They were blocked by their own arrogance. The Romans killed not only the warriors, but also the women, children, and even the pack animals. Tacitus relays a rumor that 80,000 Britons fell that day against the loss of only 400 Romans. From this battle, Boudicca and her daughters were able to escape. However, now we come to a point that historians aren't certain of because of conflicting information. And I'm going to take a sip of my wine. So Tacitus claims that Boudicca killed herself. And Cassius says that she fell ill and died. There is again no mention of the daughters. It is very likely that when cornered in the end, rather than subject themselves to the horrors the Romans had in store for them, that Boudicca and her daughters did in fact choose to take their own lives. If they didn't, then they were most assuredly brutally murdered. There has never been a burial site found for her and her daughters, though there is a myth that she is buried beneath the King's Cross Railway. So... In my book, when I came to the part where I had to write this very sad and tragic ending, I changed it up a little bit. It's still bittersweet and still brings tears to my eyes, but I feel like in the end, I gave them all a little bit more purpose and a little bit more life and all that, all the feels versus what Tacitus and Cassius said, just, you know, they killed themselves, they fell ill, we don't even know what happened to the daughters. You should read it, just saying. So, though Boudicca's rebellion started off with a blaze of hope, in the end, she ultimately did fail in her goal, which was to free the Britons of the Roman people. However, she did kick some arse along the way and certainly got the revenge she was looking for, at least partway. Romans continued to control Britain until AD 410. That's a really long time. And to this day, minus a very brief period in the Middle Ages when she was nearly forgotten, Boudicca is celebrated as a national heroine and an embodiment of the struggle for justice and independence. Two British queens would actually invoke her name in their struggles to rule, Queen Elizabeth I and Queen Victoria. So that is the life of Boudicca and her daughters. It's a really, really fascinating past that she has and just really inspiring too for her to rise up from all of that and incite hundreds of thousands of people to war to free her people. It's pretty pretty amazing. So next up, we come to the part in the podcast where I talk about what I'm reading this week and to the part where I take a break for a sip of wine for a second. All right, what I'm reading this week. I am reading Bird Box by Josh Mailerman. I watched this on Netflix. I don't know if any of you have, but it was really intense. I really enjoyed the video. But the one thing that um, I always have had to do, even if you know, they're not marginally the same or whatnot, is that when I watch a movie and I find out there's a book, I then have to read the book. And if I read a book and then there's a movie or a miniseries or anything about it, I then have to go watch. Um, They're not always the same and sometimes I'm disappointed in one or the other. But in this case, I'm really enjoying the book uh, as much as I enjoyed the show. I am going to read to you the description of this book. Something is out there 
something terrifying that must not be seen. One glimpse and a person is driven to deadly violence. No one knows what it is or where it came from. Five years after it began, a handful of scattered survivors remain, including Mallory and her two young children. Living in an abandoned house near the river, she has dreamed of fleeing to a place where they might be safe. Now that the boy and girl are four, it is time to go. But the journey ahead will be terrifying. 20 miles downriver in a rowboat, blindfolded, with nothing to rely on but her wits and the children's trained ears. One wrong choice and they will die. And something is following them. But is it man, animal, monster? Engulfed in darkness, surrounded by sounds both familiar and frightening, Mallory embarks on a harrowing odyssey. A trip that takes her into an unseen world and back into the past, to the companions who once saved her. Under the guidance of the stalwart Tom, a motley group of strangers banded together against the unseen terror, creating order from the chaos. But when supplies ran low, they were forced to venture outside and confront the ultimate question. In a world gone mad, who can really be trusted? Interweaving past and present, Josh Merlerman's breathtaking debut is a horrific and gripping snapshot of a world unraveled that will have you racing to the final page. And I definitely, definitely do agree with that. Now for a book of mine. Since I spent this week discussing Boudicca and gave you a few hints of the book I had written which concerned her, I thought it only fair to share with you my novel about her rebellion in which myself and six additional authors wrote it. A Year of Ravens, Britannia. Land of mist and magic clinging to the western edge of the Roman Empire. A red-haired queen named Boudicca led her people in a desperate rebellion against the might of Rome. An epic struggle destined to consume heroes and cowards, young and old, Roman and Breton. And these are their stories. A calculating queen foresees the fires of rebellion in a king's death. A neglected slave girl seizes her own courage as Boudicca calls for war. An idealistic tribune finds manhood in a brutal baptism of blood and slaughter. A death-haunted druid challenges the gods themselves to ensure victory for his people. A conflicted young warrior finds himself torn between loyalties to tribe and to Rome. An old champion struggles for everlasting glory in the final battle against the legions. A pair of fiery princesses fight to salvage the pieces of their mother's dream as the raven's circle. My part is that last part. <laughs> a novel in seven parts, overlapping stories of warriors and peacemakers, queens and slaves, Romans and Bretons, who cross paths during Boudicca's epic rebellion. But who will survive to see the dawn of a new Britannia, and who will fall to feed the ravens? I thought I would read to you a little part from my story. My part, The Daughters, opens up with Kina's voice, who is the youngest of Boudicca's daughters. My name means brave. However, I was anything but, and I knew it. You have everything to fear in this world, daughters, my mother said as we hunched by the water, miles from the battlefield, our lathered horses greedily drinking up the offered river. The waning light of the setting sun surrounded us, and the cold was bitter. Tall grasses stirred in the breeze, batting warily at my shoulders, while only the occasional glimmer of light broke the sullen darkness of the waters, rippling when mother dipped her hands into the depths. She cupped her hands, pulling the icy liquid to wash the blood from her face. I never thought victory was possible. All through the thirteen years since my birth, our people had struggled against Roman edicts. No swords, no way to protect ourselves, but to rely on the Romans. Thank the gods our hunters were good with arrows and slingshots, and thank the gods as well for Mother's insight that she continued with our tribe's secret training and hoarding of weapons. Had she not, we might have perished a year ago. No, I never thought victory possible, but I know our defeat for a certainty now. 
Our people have been slaughtered. Mother was injured, cut deep in a place that I'd seen kill warriors slowly, a wound I'd tended on many in the last year, in the healing tents where I'd honed my skills. What have I to fear? My sister Sorsha said, her voice haughty as often was. She was scared. She tugged her lean-muscled shoulders back, oblivious to the muck that still marred her skin from battle, now covered in a crust of dirt and sweat from our frenzied ride away from the field. Lost now. Everything and everyone lost. So that was just a little bit of my story where it opens at the end of that battle that I was telling you about in the gorge, the Battle of Watling Street. And then you get to see where their story kicks off from there. So if you would like to read the whole story, I highly suggest it, A Year of Ravens. My uh, fellow authors who joined me in this project did a phenomenal job. Um, it's, it's one of my favorite stories that I've had the chance to write. This week's question from a reader is, how many hours would you say you spend researching each project? This is an unanswerable question. <laughs> the reason being is that every project takes a different amount of time to research. It depends on what the subject matter is, how familiar I am with it already, what I might need to touch myself up on, or what I might not know at all. There are some stories that I dive into that I have no idea about anything, and I might take months to research it before I even start writing words. So it really is dependent on the project. But for sure, no matter how familiar I am with the topic, I am always researching my stories to make sure that I get the most information um, on the page. Uh, you know, I write fiction, and so I do take a creative license while writing fiction, but I also love history. So I try to stay true to history while I'm writing. And if I have to change something a little bit to fit with the story, I might, but never anything big. And I always cop to it in an author's note because that's just what you do. So thank you for that wonderful question. My question to you is... What is the latest you've ever stayed up reading a book? I mean, some of us have pulled our nighters, right? Well, we have come to the end of tonight's show. And I have so enjoyed talking with you about Boudicca. I don't know if you can tell, but I'm super passionate about her. So if you have any questions for us, please email us at historybooksandwine at gmail.com. Our website is historybooksandwine.buzzsprout.com. We'll have the show notes for today's episode listed there. They can also be found on iTunes with our podcast. We're now on Spotify, SoundCloud, Google, and Alexa. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you heard today, please leave us a review. And remember, you can always send us questions at historybooksandwine at gmail.com. I hope you enjoyed learning about Boudicca today, for I surely did enjoy talking to you about the warrior queen of all queens. Thank you so much for tuning in. Be sure to check out new episodes episodes published weekly on Thursdays. Next up is Madeline speaking about Grace O'Malley, Pirate Queen, on June 20th. And Lori on June 27th will be speaking about Joan of Arc. And our next happy hour is July 4th. We'll pay homage to some of our favorite American female role models. Thank you so much. Have a great week.